And I may skip over a few of the longer pieces of Scripture because we've been over them before, but, uh, but let's get right into it. This is the last chapter of the book of Revelation, and these are the last verses, verses 16 through 21, that we will be covering today. And I've entitled today's talk, What is Our Part in the Things that Are Written in This Book? Revelation 22, verses 16 through 21. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. For I testify to every man that hears the words of of the prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God will add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, it's by divine design that this book of Revelation of Jesus Christ opens with the instructions to keep the things which are written there, therein, and it closes with the same message. Keep the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Here are the two verses. Verse 3 of chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 22. Blessed is he that reads, and they hear the words of, the prop- of this prophecy, and keep the things which are written therein. For the time is at hand. It was written 2,000 years ago. He's in Revelation 22, 6 and 7, he said to me, these, things are, these sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Again, very imminent, not something for the future. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Same message. Same message. Imminent keep it. Both emphasize the imminent nature of the prophecy. It was never intended to be taken dispensationally. It's dispensational in as much as each generation keeps it. But every generation keeps every word of this prophecy. This book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is just Matthew 24 with many more details provided. It was always meant to be understood that this generation will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. In every generation, which reads and understands the need for keeping the things written there. What this, what this book of Revelation is, is a summary of the entire experience that has come before. It's a summary of what you and I do. It's a summary of, the lives of, all, of what happens in the lives of all men of all time. Just a summary. It just has it all some feel like any book. Sort of sum, summarizes it at the end. And that's what the book of Revelation is. Matthew 24, verse 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, 
spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Whoso reads, let him understand. This is in Matthew 24. Now look at verse 33 of Matthew 24. So likewise you, when you shall see these, all these things, know that it is near even at the door. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Who reads, let him understand, tells us that the word of God is not to be understood, but by a few. How very few believe that we're intended to keep the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Now, let's ask a few questions. Is it really true that the person who keeps the things written therein is blessed? If that's so, then just how much of what's written in this prophecy must be kept? Are the conditions con- uh, afflicting the seven churches of chapters 2 and 3 part of our blessed experience only two of the seven are not reprimanded and admonished for very serious sins Uh, Ephesus lost her first love Uh, Pergamos has the very seat of Satan the throne of Satan in her uh, Thyatira has the Nicolaitans. Another church had the Nicolaitans. Laodicea is wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. Sardis is spiritually dead. Blessed is he that keeps the things that are written therein. Have you had none of those experiences? Have they had no, no personal application for you? I think you know better than that. And so we're told at the end of every admonition to every church he that has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to all of the churches churches plural he that has an ear well that tells us very few people have an ear but those that do need to be listening to what's said to all the churches are all seven addresses for each of us or are only the kind words for Smyrna and Philadelphia for us that's what many think. What I believed myself for years. I thought only Philadelphia was for me because I was a member of the Philadelphia era of God's church. Utter hogwash. Didn't see verse 3 of chapter 1. Saw what what the Lord wanted me to see what the doctrine of the church was that I was in at the time, the Worldwide Church of God. That's what I saw. Do the four horses of the first four seals have any personal application for each of us? The first is the white horse, and we can all say, oh yeah, that's me, I'm the white horse, conquering and to conquer. The second, though, is the red horse, who takes away peace from the earth and causes the people on the earth to kill one another. The third is the black horse, which makes the oil and the wine in short supply. Starving us. Do the souls under the altar. Well, the... the, the, the yeah, the, the... The fourth, of course, is the pale horse that brings death. Do the souls under the altar of the fifth seal have any great significance for us? There's a great earthquake in that uh, seal. Of course, the seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments, of which the seventh trumpet is the seven last plagues. 
do either the trumpets or the seals I mean the, the, the uh, seven last plagues have any personal application for you and me we need to be very careful how we answer these questions because we're all going to be judged out of our own mouths and any who deny that they have ever blasphemed the name of Christ or who proclaim their righteousness as Job did or who deny that the seven seals, trumpets, and plagues have any personal application are simply postponing the keeping of the sayings of the prophecy of this book and keeping the things that are written therein until a later date just as Job did let's look at Job chapter 40 just to, just to get the point verses 1 through 8 moreover the Lord answered Job and said shall he that contends with the almighty instruct him he that reproves God let him answer it then Job answered the Lord and said behold I'm vile what shall I answer you I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Job didn't think there was any need for him to go through all that stuff that he went through. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up your loins now like a man, and I will demand of you and declare you unto me. Will you disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be, may, may be righteous? You know, this reminds me, and I'm, I'm getting off script here a little, but it reminds me of Joseph's brothers before Joseph. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's judgment. It's what we all must endure. And of course, for most of mankind, that will be in what's called the lake of fire. But for us, Lord willing, we will get this over with here and now. We'll come to see ourselves as vile here and now. Put our hands on our mouth and say, Yes, Lord, I will keep the things written therein. That's me. That does summarize my life. When we deny that we are to keep any part of the things written therein, we're doing nothing less than contending with the Almighty. Today's verses have a very stern warning concerning this truth. We're going to get to that later in the study. here. Let's look at verse 16 now. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Christ is the bright and morning star. And we'll see that that is promised to the overcomers. What does I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches mean? We've seen that Christ's angel is his own body. His angel is all those who are in every generation testifying of Jesus Christ. And that testimony declares that these things are in the churches. Just as chapters 2 and 3 demonstrate. The entire revelation of Jesus Christ is addressed to the seven churches. Which is but Bible speak for all the churches. Chapter 1 verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is, was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now look at 19.10. I fell at his feet to worship him, talking about the Christ's angel that came to show us these things. And he said to me, 
This is John, who is the angel this angel brought it to. See, you do it not. I'm your fellow servant. Here's this angel telling John who he symbolizes, who he represents. He represents John. He represents you. He represents me. I am your fellow servant and of your brothers that have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, the spirit of having this testimony. Christ's is the Father's anointed. Christ is the Father's anointed. He has sent His Christ, His anointed, as His angel. That's what Christ came to do. And this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Him to give to His uh, servants. In this prophecy, John is the figure of all of us. If we are indeed His fellow servants and of His brothers who have the testimony of Jesus. Luke 22, verse 29. Listen to this. this. This gives us what's going on. I appoint unto your kingdom as my Father appointed unto me. John 20, verse 21. Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. Acts 4, 26. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen. The seventh angel sounded, and there's great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 12, verse 10. I heard a loud voice in, uh, saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brothers is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. He's cast down. Now we have peace of mind. No longer being accused. No longer feeling guilty. Because Christ is now living in us. Now one of these things is the truth. You know, testify of these things that is very little understood by even those who confess it. That truth is the fact that while Christ was indeed conceived in the womb of his mother Mary by the Holy Spirit, he was still, by virtue of being made of a woman, made under law. At the same time, both the root and the offspring of David. Of David. He was flesh. The same as the children. Now, in the natural realm, it's impossible to be both the root and the offspring of anyone. Yet Christ claims to be both the root of David as well as the offspring of King David. He goes even further by claiming to be the first and the last. The beginning and the end. Now this seems to be contrary to all that Babylon teaches. Simply because, in effect, it's saying that Christ creates evil as well as good. Now how can that be possible? Here's the answer to that question for all who can accept it. Proverbs 16.4 The Lord has made all things for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of evil. I know we've heard these a thousand times, but... Bear with me. You'll, you'll see the need for being rem reminded of it. Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7. I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no God besides me. I girded you, though you have not known me. Though you have not known me, while we're yet in sin, whether we believe him or not, that they may know from the rising of the sun 
and from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There's none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. There's none else. Saying, I, and this is Revelation 1, verse 11. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Thyatira. Verse Chapter 22, verse 13. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is repeated 12 times in this book of Revelation in different, various forms. That's just how important it is to understand that it's all of Him. All of it. But what is He the beginning and the end of? What is He the first and the last of? Here it is. Here's what Christ is first and last. Here's what He's the beginning and the end. 1 Corinthians 15.45 And so it is written. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Who is that first man at? Made of a woman. Made under the law. Who is that? Just a question. So is the first Adam really of Christ? What do the scriptures teach? Luke 3 verse 38. Which was the son of Venus, which was the son of Seth. This is the genealogy of Christ. Of Christ! All the way back to Adam. Christ was the son of Adam. Of the same flesh. Irrefutable. Traced all the way back and yet denied by all. The son of Venus, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So you see, the first Adam did not have a heavenly father, a physical father either. He had a heavenly father, just like the last Adam. And just like you and me, we have a heavenly Father, even though we are of the first Adam. And we have a heavenly Father because we are also of the second Adam. And we are born of that heavenly Father, not having a physical Father, just like Christ, just like the first Adam. Because that's who we are. This is all the revelation of Jesus Christ. Both of those. You don't have one without the other. Are both the first and second Adams really sons of God? How is that possible? The biblical answer to the question is yes. Christ is both the first and the last. In Him. Look at it now. Acts 17 verse 28. For in Him we live and move and have our being. It's all possible in Him. As certain also of your poets have said, now he's speaking to pagan Athenians here, for we also are his offspring. Verse 29, for as much then as we, including these pagan Athenians who he's talking to, are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of God, the Godhead, is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. We're his offspring. Pagans. Romans 11.36 For we read this last night in the study. For of him, through him, and to him are all things. 
to whom be glory forever and ever. Not forever, amen. Christ is truly the beginning and the end. Christ is the first and the last. <clears throat> and if that's hard to swallow, just go back over those scriptures. Notice that Christ is traced all the way back to the first Adam. At the end of this 16th verse here in Revelation 22, Christ informs us that he's also the bright and morning star. The bright and morning star is the reward which is promised to all overcomers. What greater gift can be given? Christ gives us himself, just as his Father gave him himself through his Spirit. Look at John 16, 13. How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, that's God, the Father, is come... <coughs> He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. For he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine. See, Christ claims his Father's Spirit. He says it's his. And here's why. He will receive of mine and show it unto you. Here's why. All things the Father has are mine. Therefore said I, he shall take of mine and shall show it to you. Well, Christ says it's the same thing with us in, re in relationship to him. The Father is, I give you a kingdom like the Father gave you, me. I'm sending you forth as my Father sent me forth. It's the same relationship. All things Christ has are ours. As he is with his Father. And only in the throne is he greater is his father greater than him. And that's the same with us. Christ is our always going to be our head, and in the throne he'll be greater than us. But we have been given power over all Egypt and over all the nations of the world in Christ. Simply because he is our morning star. And he has given us the morning star. Revelation 2.26 He that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give <coughs> power over all nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. First within, then without. <coughs> as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken in shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. Now someone's going to say to me, but Mike, not that which is spiritual is first, but that which is uh, natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. And that is true. <clears throat> we are given power over our bodies physically first, but then we're given power spiritually. And the same thing will be true for the rest of mankind. We will be given physical power over the earth. Then we will give to the earth spiritual power via a thing called the lake of fire. So don't don't try to make the word of God contradict itself. It never works. It never works. The sum of his word is truth. And that's what we're going to dwell on at the end of this study. Revelation 22, verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that hears say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, 
let him take of the water of life freely. Now the bride and him that hears are one and the same. They both have the Spirit of God. They both are granted to say to all who thirst, come, take of the water of life freely. It's through them that that takes place. The bride and he that hears. All men of all time will come to God through the gates of the bride. Through the pillars of the temple. The gates of the cities are the gates of the bride who is that city. 1 Corinthians 11.2 I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I've espoused you to one husband that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. We're his bride. Revelation 19.17 Let us rejoice. Uh, 19.7 Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So, the bride of the Lamb, the New Jerusalem, is given fine linen, clean and white. Revelation 21, verse 1. I saw New Jerusalem. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All men of all time will be made to know God by the church, by the city. It will happen through the pillars of the temple, through the gates of the New Jerusalem, both in this age and in the eons to come. Ephesians 3, 9. Here it just says it. To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. (coughs) To the intent that now, not later, not 2,000 years later, and not... A year later, from our perspective, now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church. All men now by the church in every generation. The manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which is purposed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Revelation 3.12 He that overcomes will I make a pillar. That's the doors to the holy place and the doors to the holy of holies in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. Now look at Revelation 21, verse 12. There's going to be pillars in the temple of God if we overcome this is what those pillars are going to be. Just another form of it. Speaking of the New Jerusalem, had a wall great and high and twelve gates. And at the twelve gates, twelve inches. And names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city 
was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. Blessed are, this is verse 14 of chapter 22. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they might have the right to the tree of life. This is our study last week. And may enter through the gates into the city. No one comes to God except through these pillars, through these gates. You say, well, one is nine and the other is twelve. One is speaking of the judgment and the other is speaking of foundation. They're the same thing with different applications. All men, by the church, through the gates, into the city, the gates, the pearls, the angels, the holy city, New Jerusalem, are all symbols of the same great spiritual revelation of Jesus Christ himself via the spirit of his father in all those who are to be his bride the holy Jerusalem it's given to us if we're granted to be that virgin bride to be the channel through which God will save all men here is what it means to be a pillar in our God now these are the verses that tell about the uh, pillars in the temple. And I'm not going to read them now because we're running short on time, but they, they just explain that the veil in the tabernacle is hung on five pillars at the door of the tabernacle, four between the holy place and the holy of holies. To be made a pillar in the temple of my God is to be made the very instrument through which all men will be brought to God. <coughs> The eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ is this revelation of Jesus Christ within all men, each in his own order. And that's what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15:23. Now, let all those who would be these pillars, gates, pearls, angels, through whom all men of all time will be brought to Christ, let us take careful note of how this revelation of Jesus Christ closes with this solemn and stern warning. Revelation twenty two eighteen. For I testify to every man that hears the words of this of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life, out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly. Imminent. Not, not later. Now. Now under the principalities and powers. Now he comes quickly. Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. If we speak above what is written, we're adding to the things which are written therein. Revelation 1.3 If we do such a rash and foolish thing, God will add unto him that the plagues that are written in this book. Notice that we're not told that God will plague those who add to the things which are written therein. We'll all keep the things which are written therein. That's, that's, that's going to happen. Just, just a matter of when. We'll keep all the things written therein and the seven last plagues are written therein. That's why we're told, I testify to every man that hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if any man add to these things, God will add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. 
since we have all come out of Babylon, we've all added unto these things, and we will all have these things, these plagues added to us, in accord to our stubborn, rebellious, and blinded ways. So it's all the work of our Lord, and our lack of appreciation of Him having us give an accounting of all He has caused us to do doesn't change this work of our Creator in our lives. We're going to live by every word. There's not a single word in there that doesn't have personal application. Look at Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made all things for Himself, yes, even the wicked. We don't have to appreciate it. We just have to believe it. Even the wicked for the day of evil. The Lord made makes every wicked man, every wicked action that every wicked man does. That verse says the Lord made it. Isaiah 63, verse 17. Just to add to that. O Lord, why have you made us to err from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake to the tribes of your inheritance. Oh, does our natural man boil at the sound of words like that. God makes us to sin and then he judges us for it. God makes us to sin and then he tells us, give an accounting of what I had you to do. Yes. Yes, he does. And if we don't like it, the day's coming when we will. Who among us is not by nature wicked? Who among us has not erred from our Heavenly Father's ways and been hardened from his ways? So what part of this prophecy is not appointed to every man? And not to be applied to every man. Colossians 1.26 Even the mystery which has been hid from the ages and from the generations but now is made manifest to his saints. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Who we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Wow. Paul thought that he was going to be presenting every man to God in Christ Jesus. Wherefore, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his work, his working, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Does Christ work mightily in you? Well, I hope he does. This prophecy is all of the things written therein. If we take out all the seven fiery trumpet judgments, or if we place the seven last plagues written therein upon someone else, we're taking our part in the things which are written, taking out our part in the things which are written therein. What will be done to anyone who attempts to do such a foolish thing? Verse 19, if any man will take away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city. In other words, he won't be part of the pride. And from the things which are written in this book. Which things? All of them. Don't parse the word of God. Now, if you've got a scripture to add to the word of God, come and show it to me. But don't bring me one that contradicts the word of God, because that's not going to fly.
out of the book of life, out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. All of them. Take it out now, put it in later. Is the old um, Midas commercial was it? One of the one of the known commercials said, "Pay me now or pay me later." Maybe it was an, uh, an uh, Amco commercial. I think it was Amco. But anyway, we are going to live by every word that proceeds out of the God, out of the mouth of God, either now or we will do it later. But we will do it. Now it's argued by all of those who are considered to be great men of God in the churches of Babylon that to believe that the plagues written in this prophecy and labeled the wrath of God have any personal application to or upon God's elect is to nullify the promise of 1 Thessalonians 5.9. This is what all the churches argue and believe. Now here's 1 Thessalonians 5.9. A very, very convincing argument for those who don't have eyes to see and don't know anything about the sum of God's word. A very convincing argument. 1 Thessalonians 5.9. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like saying, God hasn't appointed us to death. We're going to live forever. That's argued that we simply cannot keep and live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and Christ in this prophecy because of this promise. Right there in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and this promise in in Revelation 3.10. Because you've kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. If we keep God's patience, we're kept from that. Never have to go through it. Is that what that said? No, it didn't. No, it didn't. How, it is asked, is it possible to be not appointed to wrath and yet endure the wrath of the seven last plagues? How, it is asked, is it possible to keep the hour, kept from, be kept from the hour of temptation and live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, which tells us there is an hour of temptation which will come upon all the world? These are not illogical questions I've never said that I see the human logic in it we've all had these questions so let's just ask and answer how it's possible to enter into the temple of God after the seven plagues of the seven angels are fulfilled and at the same time be able to say God has not appointed us to wrath Well, we're told we're not appointed to wrath. We're also told this. Revelation 15, 7 and 8. One of the four beasts which gave unto the uh, seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. No man is going to enter into the temple till seven plagues full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever is fulfilled in that person's life. Are these words of this prophecy not for you? Do you believe that 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 is for you but the words of Revelation 15, 8 are not things written therein to be kept by you? If that's your mindset, then you have no concept of what the sum of God's word means. Psalms 119.60 The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. 
if you think the First Thessalonians five nine is true, but Revelation uh, one three, Matthew four four, Revelation twenty two six and seven. Now Matthew four four says man will live by every word of God. And Revelation one three says that we're to keep the things written there. In Revelation twenty two six and seven says keep the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And Revelation fifteen eight says keep the seven last plagues, or you can't enter into the temple of God. Now, if you believe that. First Thessalonians five nine nullifies all of those other scriptures. Then you have turned the words S U M into the word S O M, and you now believe that you can pick and choose which words written therein have any personal application for you. That, that's that's what you're doing. In other words, you're taking away from the words of the prophecy of this book, and at the same time, you're adding to them. So, how does the principle of the sum of God's word work? How is it possible to be delivered from the wrath of God in our lives and still have the seven plagues of the seven angels fulfilled in our lives? This is accomplished in the exact same way that we're being delivered from being blind. Look at John 9, 39 through 41. <clears throat> and then we'll give several other examples of this principle. Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world that they that see not might see and that they would see might be made blind. Well, have we ever been blind? Yeah. Or will we be made to see? Have we ever thought that we saw? Yeah. Well, then we had to be made blind. So that we could see. Verse 40. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, Are we, blind? Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. In other words, if you just confess your blindness, then you'll be able to see. But now you say, we see. So your sin remains. If you were blind, you would have no sin. Means simply, as long as we don't acknowledge our blindness, our sin remains. Our blindness remains. So it is with the wrath of God. We're not appointed wrath only if we acknowledge that we ourselves have been, by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. Is that a true statement that I just made? Let's read it. Ephesians 2.3 Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. The Gospel of John says that anyone that doesn't believe in Christ, the wrath of God abides on him. Now we're adding Scripture to Scripture. While adding nothing to the things that are written therein. Now we're able to accept the sum of God's Word instead of subtracting it from itself, instead of pitting Scripture against Scripture and taking away from the things that are written therein. How is it possible to believe on Christ in this life and never die as Christ promised Martha? John 11 verse 23 Jesus said to her your brother speaking of Lazarus shall rise again and Martha said to him I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day Jesus said to her I am the resurrection and the life he that believes on me though he were dead yet shall he live and whoever lives and believes on me shall never die believe you this 
Now just how does one go about believing on Christ so as to never die? Yes, once again, contrary. Contradictory as 1 Thessalonians 5.9 seems to Ephesians 2.3 and Revelation 15.8. You know, by nature the children of wrath even as others and must fulfill the wrath of God in our lives before we can enter into the temple. This is the only way to believe on Christ and never die. This, this verse I'm going to show you here, is the is how we can live forever and not be appointed to death. It's the same principle by which we are not appointed to wrath. Matthew 10, 39. Here's the principle. I pray God gives us all the ability to see and accept these words. He that finds his life will lose it. He that loses his life, for my sake, will find it. So, let's ask. Do you want to see the things of the Spirit? If so, you simply must acknowledge your spiritual blindness. Do you want to live and never die? If so, all you need to do is lose your life in this world for Christ's sake. And you'll find how you will never die. Would you be found of God? You simply must acknowledge that you're spiritually lost. Would you not be appointed to wrath? All you need to do is acknowledge that you have been by nature a child of wrath, even as others. That the seven plagues of the seven angels have been fulfilled in your life. And then you're not appointed to wrath, but to salvation, as are all men. All men are appointed to salvation. No man is appointed unto wrath. Now there are two more verses which bookend this subject of God's wrath and bookend the subject of how we approach every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now here are those two very revealing verses of Scripture. Ecclesiastes 9.2 If this is true, then there's no question about keeping every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Ecclesiastes 9.2 All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean, and to the unclean, to him that sacrifices and to him that sacrifices not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he that swears, as he that fears another. In other words, doesn't swear. The other scripture is 1 Corinthians 3, 21-23. Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you're Christ, and Christ is God's. Now, think about this just for a minute. Should Ecclesiastes 9-2 read, All things come alike to all but God's elect? Is that what it should have said? Because they never experience His wrath upon their unrighteousness. Is that what the sum of God's Word teaches? Absurd. Absurd. Look at Romans 11, 1, uh, Romans 1, verse 8, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold truth in unrighteousness, who twist the Word of God. Should Romans 1.18 read, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men except those who accept Christ? 
Should 1 Corinthians 3, 21 and 22 that we read be made to read most things are yours, most things present, most things to come, but not the seven last plagues of God's wrath upon your ungodliness or for my ungodliness and my unrighteousness. We who have the mind of Christ know this is not the case. We're careful to neither add to nor take away from the words of this prophecy, knowing that we will reap what we sow, knowing that the grace of God will chasten us to live ungodly lives in this age. Now that's how this great revelation ends. <clears throat> ends on the word grace. Ends with a promise that death and all that are dead in Hades and in, in the sea will be delivered up to those who are the lake of fire to be cleansed of all that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and His Christ. Look at Isaiah 33, verse 14. If you want to have some fun, just go to the commentaries and see what they have to say about these verses. The sinners in Zion are afraid. The fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? A fair question that deserves an answer, and we get it in the very next verse. And this is where the commentaries just add to and take from in a major way. And if you want to see how that's done, look at your commentaries. Any of them? Any of them? Verse 15. Here's the answer. He that walks righteously and speaks uprightly is going to dwell with the devouring fire and the everlasting burnings. He that despises the gain of oppressions, that shakes his hand from holding bribe, stops his ears from hearing, hearing of blood, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Why? Well, we can't do that. That's fanatical. Okay. I'll leave that up to you and God. Those among us who are at ease in and are able to dwell in devouring fire and everlasting burnings of God's word are those who speak uprightly. Those fiery words. They are the fire. They are the gates of the city. They are the pillars in the temple of God. They are the bride of Christ, which is New Jerusalem. It's by those twelve gates of a single pearl each that all the dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, who love and make a lie will one day be redeemed of all their sins and be made and reformed into a new vessel. That seems good to the potter to make it. But the potter made the marred vessel too. He did them both. He is the first and the last. Revelation twenty two fourteen. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. You know the uh, whoremongers, sorcerers, whoremongers, uh, murderers, idolaters, and those who love and make a lie are all those who add to and take from the words of the prophecy of this book. That's who they are. And yet they're going to enter into the city through the gates, through you and me, into us, because we are the city as well as the gates. And we're in Christ. Or without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and makes a lie. Such is the revelation of Jesus Christ in every man. We've all been without the city. We've all twisted the word of God 
We've all been dogs and sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters. Whoever doesn't love his brother is a murderer. So don't think there's any way you can get around keeping the sayings of the prophecy of this book. You've done it. We've all done it. But this prophet of judgment will end and be accomplished in every man who has ever lived. And the scriptures make that clear. Let's just go over a few of those verses. And these are just a few of them. John 3.17 God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world will be saved. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The world. 1 Timothy 2.4 Who will have all men to be saved when they come unto a knowledge of the truth. The whole world. 1 Timothy 4.10 We therefore both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men especially first first fruits not exclusively but especially first of those that believe 2 Peter 3 9 the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness but is long suffering to us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance that's the purpose for God's patience and grace he's going to have all to come to repentance the whole world 1 John 2 2 he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world the sins of the whole world he is the propitiation for those sins it's not a wasted propitiation it's all accomplished by our Lord himself working in every man his chastening work of grace. That's why we're we all ask for that chastening grace to always be with us at all times. Titus two eleven and twelve. For the grace of God that brings salvation, grace brings salvation, and it has appeared to all men. Teaching, the Greek word is pahiduo, chastening. The word is chastening us to deny ungodliness. For that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Word is eight. So this revelation of Jesus Christ ends with these words. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's by Christ's chastening grace. And our ever, as our everlasting Father, which He's called in Isaiah 9, 6, through His faith working in us, His faith, that all men will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's all of Him. It's from beginning to end His work within us. And we bring nothing at all to the table. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. My grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God did before them, that we should walk in them. Alright, that is the book of Revelation. That concludes our studies in this book. And next week, if the Lord wills, we will begin a series of studies in the book of Job.
where we will see the most conclusive demonstration of the relationship Christ has with Satan. And we will see that Job and his trials is each of us in our own appointed time and is a demonstration of God's chastening grace working to reveal our self-righteous selves to us. Here are the verses we hope to cover in our next study. Job 1, verses 1 through 3. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright. The word perfect is a bad translation, but we'll cover that next week. And one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. There is significance to the fact that he had seven sons and three daughters. In other words, he had ten children. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest man, was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now there is so much being said there. And we'll just see what that is next week.